We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. Tonight, we are hosting one of the great groups around the New York Giants Preservation Society. It's a terrific group of guys led by Gary Mintz. He does a fantastic job. For those of you listening to the podcast, if you're anywhere close to the New York area, you should definitely join the group. If you're not in the area, please follow them on Facebook or their website, and uh, it's, a, it's a great group. It's a great group. We try to host as many events as we can throughout the year for them. Tonight's event, we have a very special guest, Dr. Lo- Lawrence Hogan, Larry Hogan, who wrote a terrific book, So Many Seasons in the Sun, A Century and More of Conversation with Baseball's Greatest Clubhouse Managers. Larry, thank you so much for coming. I'm delighted to be here, Jay. Thank you. And it's your show. Okay. Well, I, you know, frequently somebody will look at me because I've got a reputation for having done a lot in the area of black baseball. And they'll say, uh, oh, there's that expert. He really knows a lot about black baseball. Well, I'm kind of in awe of you guys tonight because you know a lot more about the Giants, I suspect, than I do. Uh, but uh, I had debated with myself. Uh, oh, I want to say thank you to Gary too for hosting me here this evening and making this possible. Gary, thank you so much for, attend- uh, for attending. Larry is a, is a professor, Union uh, College in New yeah, Jersey. Union, Union County College. Union, Union County Jersey. College in New Jersey. And besides his book, he's written many books on. Uh, an expert on, on uh, the Negro Leagues. Yeah. And I should have mentioned that prior. I apologize. Oh no, that's. Uh, in fact, uh, black baseball works its way into this particular book in some interesting ways, too. I don't know if I'll reference that tonight, but uh, certainly the whole integration story is a big part of uh, the Giants' history. And very close to Monty Irvin, who shared a lot of that with me across the years. And uh, I'm not uh, sure whether people are aware of another aspect of this, uh, uh, which goes back to the 1920s, when the Giants had black trainers working for them. A guy named Ed Mackle was a wonderful trainer with them for many years. Uh, there's a section in here, uh, how did I title it? Uh, you, you can't play with them, but you can rub their bodies. You know, and, uh, it, it makes for a very interesting uh, piece of the story that I'm sharing with you tonight. Um, I wanted to start out by talking about how this book came to be. It goes back to 2004. Uh, A good friend of mine, Jim Lockhart, and I have, for the last 10 years or so, managed to get away from the cold of February or the cold of March and do a week in Scottsdale or down in Florida for spring training and golf. And in 2004, uh, I went to Scottsdale with Jim because we had contacted Felipe Alou, the manager of the Giants uh, at the time, we wanted to interview Felipe about uh, a major figure in Giants history. Uh, and again, everybody here, I think, knows Alejandro Pompez. You know, I argue that Pompez is maybe the greatest scout in the history of baseball, and certainly a major figure in, uh, in black baseball. And when we sent word down to the Giants, uh, made the contact to the Giants, and asked if we could have an interview with Felipe Alou, word came back that Felipe was willing to talk about Alejandro Pompez all day, he said. I'd be happy to do that. Well, there we were uh, for this interview, and we were hanging around 
outside the clubhouse waiting for uh, for the uh, contact with Felipe, and this tall gentleman comes comes up to it, and uh, he asks who we are, and I said, well, this is why we're here, and I mentioned to him the fact that uh, we were there. Yeah, you can just put those right there. That's something later on. I mentioned to him the fact that we were. Uh, there to do what there was to do. We were going to interview Felipe Alou. Uh, oh, and, and mentioned Ariandro Pompez. And, and he said to us, well, I, I knew Mr. Pompez. And then he started to tell us specific stories about Ariandro Pompez. Uh, I didn't know really who I was talking to at that point in time. Then he identified himself and he said, uh, I'm Mike Murphy. I'm the clubhouse manager of the Giants. And the conversation continued. And very shortly thereafter, he had us back in the clubhouse of the Yankees in the 1920s in spring training, and he's telling me stories about Babe Ruth that I've never heard before. And uh, I said to myself, who is it that I'm talking to here? You know, and, and it turned out that it was this fellow who, in 1958, came to the Giants as a bat boy in San Francisco. Uh, two years later, took over the clubhouse and is still in the clubhouse right now, you know, 55 years into his his tenure there. Well, uh, it didn't take much for me to figure out that I was talking to somebody very special who had a great deal of history inside of him, and I wanted to get at that history. What I didn't realize at the time, of course, was the extent of the history. The history goes back all the way to 1889, when a youngster at the age of 11 years, his name was Fred Logan, I reference him in the book as Father Logan, uh, Fred Logan, hanging around uh, the polo grounds at the time, uh, was invited by uh, the star shortstop of the Giants, John Montgomery Ward, to go get him a sandwich you know, down at the, uh, a local deli. Uh, and he did, and he came back, and uh, he got a nice tip. And uh, then the next day, the, uh, the person running the clubhouse, he's still hanging around at this point in time, said, well... Uh, you know, there's some things you can do around here, and that turned into a job that uh, lasted all the way down to 1946. He basically died on the job. Fred Logan. That's where the story starts, and I got that after I figured out who Murph was and where Murph got all of his history from. Uh, he got his history from uh, Ed Logan, his predecessor out in San Francisco. Yep, okay. Ed Logan uh, was uh, Fred's son and early in the 1920s began to be the designated heir to Fred. Uh, interestingly enough, Fred didn't just have the giants in the clubhouse. Uh, he, he also had the Highlanders in the clubhouse. In 1903, he becomes the clubhouse manager for the Highlanders. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Highlanders turn into the Yankees, and he's got both New York teams from, let's say, 1889 all the way down to 1946. Uh, in 1927, there's a 16-year-old kid hanging around Yankee Stadium, and Fred Logan, who has the Yankee clubhouse at that point in time, spots him. And it's kind of a repetition of what had happened when he originally was hanging around. Of course, this kid was Pete Sheehy, uh, and he says to Pete Sheehy, you know, uh, you want to earn some money, kid? You want to come into the clubhouse and do something? And uh, that turns into a tenure 
of upwards of 58 years in the Yankee clubhouse. So, uh, you know, what I've got, uh, I'd have to be a fool, I guess, not to want to follow this story out. I've got the whole history of the two most significant franchises in the history of baseball. And we certainly make that argument that the Giants and the Yankees, historically speaking, are the most significant of all of the franchises. And I've got them covered from almost day one with Fred Logan, passing it down to Ed Logan, passing it over to Pete Chee, and then Murph as a 16-year-old kid, when they move out to San Francisco, uh, ends up uh, having his tenure of 50-some-odd years. Well, uh, God, I'm not going to leave this story alone. You know, I'm going to search it out as best I can and write it up as best I can and collect all of the wonderful stories that these guys are carrying around with them and uh, turn them into so many seasons in the sun. Um, you mentioned uh, Peter uh, McGowan earlier. Uh, one of the keys to doing a book like this, of course, is to get access to the people that you've got to get access to. And Peter McGowan, who was managing partner of the Giants, when I came to him, uh, uh, I came to him as somebody who was you know, established as a writer of black baseball and uh, asked him uh, you know, whether there'd be an interest in me or I had an interest, I said, in doing this kind of story, and I wondered whether they'd uh, be interested in having this kind of story done. And Peter McGowan gave me complete access to uh, the, He was the door opener for me in lots of ways. He uh, uh, wrote a wonderful letter for me that I used to get access to all the people that I interviewed for the book, and he's on the back cover here as one of the endorsers of the book. When I started the story out, I knew that I could get Mike Murphy without any problem at all. Murph was there, although he, would not, he, would, he wouldn't have come to me and opened up to the degree that he did because he's very closed about everything that goes on in the clubhouse, you know, the old business about what happens here, stays here, it doesn't go out of. But because Peter McGowan uh, opened the door for me to Murph, Murph felt he had an obligation, I guess, to tell his story. So I knew I had no problems getting, getting uh, uh, Murph, uh, and of course, lots of folks still alive, obviously, uh, who uh, can say a lot about Murph, a whole several generations of Giants players have come through. Uh, I knew I could get Ed Logan, because there's enough players left who worked with him in the clubhouse so that I could get directly into Ed Logan. I kind of knew, and I, I debated for a while whether I was going to include Pete Sheehy in it at all, but then it just was natural to include him in because of the way he was hired by Fred Logan. Uh, but how in the world am I going to get to Fred Logan? He's dead in 1946. The only person who is alive who can testify directly to me, and Gary was the person I just learned I'd forgotten that, who connected me into Ed Logan Jr., his son, and Ed Logan became a wonderful source for this book as well. But uh, I, I need more than that. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he, he's not going to be easy to get to. Well, uh, in researching on the web one day, I got into the sporting news, and I came across an article that was written in 1938 in the sporting news. Thank God it was on the web, because if I had to go through other sources, I don't know how I would ever have gotten to it. A full-length column by J. Taylor Spink, who... You guys know, of course, as the godfather of the sporting news, you know. And uh, he had done this interview with Fred Logan in 1938, and it was absolutely precious. If I had to ask all of the questions that I would have wanted to ask if I could have spoken directly to Fred Logan, these were the kinds of questions I would have asked. Uh, 
so that was a wonderful source to be able to get at uh, get at the uh, the start of the story in terms of the primary source that was Fred Logan. But that wasn't enough. I needed more. And one of the things that I've had a lot of fun with here is conducting an interview with Fred Logan. How can I conduct an interview with a dead man? Well, I can imaginatively do that. I can creatively do that by having some knowledge back there of the scene that he was a part of, of specific incidents that come out of the clubhouse world back there, or of specific players. Uh, in the interview that he did with uh, with uh, uh, with uh, Jay Taylor Spink, he mentions uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the real characters that were back there, Rube Waddell, and uh, you know people of this sort. And I can pull up from the history that we have some interesting anecdotes about them and then create questions that uh, relate to Logan and then imaginatively with some help from some friends of mine as well provide answers to. You know, some people may look on that as a little questionable in terms of uh, you know, getting at the reality that's back there. But I think we were pretty faithful too. So... There's the way the book comes into being. There's the history that I'm presenting to you. Uh, it's a whole series of wonderful stories. And, and I'm just going to read to you one of those stories to give you a taste of, and then we'll just open it up to questions and let you uh, carry me wherever you're going to carry me today. Yeah? Uh, one of the first people that uh, I interviewed out in San Francisco was a fellow named Pat Gallagher. Pat was uh, marketing director of the Giants at that point in time. Of all the people who had tenure with the Giants, he was the closest to Mike Murphy. Murph was like 50 years into his tenure at that point in time. Pat Gallagher was 29 years into his tenure. So you can see from that just how, uh, you know, more extensively was, was Murph. And, and Pat uh, really was one of the best interviews I did. It's good when you get off to... Uh, you know, you're starting out on a project like this that right at the outset you find some gems and I certainly found one in Pat Gallagher uh, the story that I'm going to read to you here is a short one it takes you into the clubhouse and when, uh, when Pat gave it to me he gave it to me a little bit reluctantly he said Larry uh, I'm going to tell you one and I'm not sure I want you to, uh, to uh, print this one I'm not sure this is on the record uh, the other person in the clubhouse or in the Giants family who a goodly number of you folks know is Mario Aliota. Mario is the chief financial officer of the Giants today. When Mario read the book, they wanted to be sure that there was nothing in there that was going to be terribly controversial or out of sort or whatnot. Is he related to the mayor Aliota? No, he's not. He's not at all, although coincidentally you would expect he would be. When Mario read the book, he said, Larry, the only story I would, I would question in there is the Pat Gallagher story that you're going to hear right now. Well, I think it's a pretty innocent story, but it's a pretty funny story, too. Huh? It goes this way. During those years in the clubhouse, this is Ed Logan's clubhouse, you would get team autographed baseballs where guys would sign the balls. Part of the team's deal with a clubhouse guy is that he would buy baseballs. He would get the players to sign them, and he would turn around and sell them. They weren't getting much salary, these clubhouse guys, and they had to make money any way they could, and this was one of the ways that they did. And that's what Pat is saying. I'm directly quoting Pat here. In those days, he couldn't make very much money, but that was the deal. So Eddie Hogan is in the clubhouse, and they had the baseballs in boxes in the middle of the room, and he would say, sign the balls, boys, sign the balls, fellas. 
Some guys would sign them, and there would be some who wouldn't. The clubhouse guy could probably sign everybody's autograph just as well as they could. You know, there's a whole lot of uh, uh, seemingly authentic Babe Ruth signature balls out there that obviously weren't signed by the Babe, you know, and I think that's true in practically every clubhouse. So Logan was pressuring them to sign the balls. All of a sudden, down in the corner, I think it was Gary Matthews, you hear him say, hey, Logan, sign my balls. Logan turns around and says, I would if I had a white pen. (laughs) I would if I had a white pen. So stories like this abound through this book. It's really a wonderful set of stories of this sort. I could, you know, share many more with you, but uh, maybe that's a tease enough to uh, get you to think about buying the book tonight, which I'd obviously be happy you would do if you decide that you want to do that. Uh, but I think I'd like to just open it up to questions and comments that folks might have about uh, this journey that I was on. Great stories. Uh, I gotta answer one thing. I have been uh, with Ed Logan Jr. Uh, at some events. Uh, we were in Cooperstown last year, and Mike Orlando Cepeda was there, Marichal was there, and they always they would say hello, Ed. But Ed's father, it was always Mr. Logan. He was that held in that high regard. Oh, he was. He was held in very high regard by the players. He was a fellow, though, that they had a lot of fun with, too. And there's some wonderful stories back and forth there. Gaylord Perry tells a wonderful story of picking Ed Logan up one day in the clubhouse and stuffing him into a garbage can that was there because uh, he had come in very mad off of a bad time on the mound. And... Uh, uh, Logan uh, jabbed at him a little bit, and uh, he ended up in the in the can in the clubhouse, uh, but laughing all the time, you know, having good fun back and forth. He's Mr. Logan to Murph right now. Most of the time, when you're talking with Murph, it's always that Mr. Logan. Yeah, it was a lot of respect for him. Uh, I come away from this. There's a section in here where he he talks about <laughs> one of the other stories that. Uh, I picked up very quickly from Pat Gallagher was the cock pocket story. Uh, He was cutting hot dogs one day in the clubhouse uh, preparing some food and apparently one of the giants was amply endowed and he came up in back of Ed Logan and he stuck his cock in Ed Logan's pocket. Ed Logan didn't know what he was doing but he then discovered what he was doing and Logan says I had a knife in my hand and if I had caught that guy I would have cut it off. Well he, uh, he, that was, you know, that was not something that you did. I mean, that was, you know, that was terribly disrespectful, and that's the way Ed Logan took it at the time. And it was exceptional because he was really somebody who was, you know, revered and, and respected in, in the clubhouse. Take, take me through the sequence again um, of the four yeah, guys. Yeah, well, Ed was the original. Fred is the original. Fred is the original. It's 1889. He's 11 years old. He's hanging around the polo grounds. And John Montgomery Ward says, go get me a sandwich. And there you go. He gets the Highlanders in 1903 when they come into New York. So he's got those two clubhouses. And, of course, what is it, 1911, 1912? They're sharing the the, the, uh, same clubhouse while they're repairing the, the, the polo grounds. Uh, when Yankee Stadium comes into being, he simply moves over to Yankee Stadium, and he's still there. Has the he still has the Giants. Yeah, he still has the Giants. By this time, it's like the early 1920s. Uh, 
Ed Logan is old enough to start to play a role as an assistant to his dad in, in, in those clubhouses. And 1930, 31 or so, basically Ed Logan is managing at that point in time, Bill Terry's the manager, he's managing uh, the Giants clubhouse, and his dad has pretty much moved over into the Yankee clubhouse. But there's still some back and forth. There's an incredibly funny and wonderful story here in 1939 where... Uh, 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 ben Chapman, of all people, uh, is uh, taken for a ride in the Yankee clubhouse uh, in, in a very, very funny scene that was orchestrated. And both Ed Logan and Fred Logan are there at that point in time. So you know, they are still kind of going back and forth. Fred dies in 1946. So Ed has got the Giants, but by that time, Pete Chee has got the Yankees. Pete Chee was... was uh, uh, was Fred's assistant from 1926 as a kid, 16 years old. Uh, when Fred then, or excuse me, when Ed leaves with the Giants in 1957-58, Murph comes on as a bat boy for two years, and in 1960 takes over the visitors' clubhouse. And then when Ed leaves in '79, retires in '79, Murph gets the clubhouse as his. And Murph is such a, he's a funny guy, he's a self-effacing guy, he's a guy who keeps to himself in lots of ways, which was the key to get me into him through Peter McGowan. Uh, in 1979, when Logan tells Murph that he's retiring, and he's going to have to take over the home clubhouse, Murph says to Logan, but I don't know anything about running the home clubhouse. Well, you've been running the uh, visitors clubhouse for you know, fifteen years. I mean, it wasn't that big a transition over. And in fact, he tried to beg off. Uh, what's his name? Laurie. What was Laurie's first name? Bob Laurie. Bob Laurie. Yeah, Bob Laurie was the owner at the time. And Bob Laurie, uh, 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 Murph goes to Bob Laurie. He says, uh, I, 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 after he's in the, the home clubhouse for a little bit, he says, I don't like this, Mister Laurie. I want to go back to my old place. And Mr. Laurie says, well, you stay there and we'll be looking for someone, maybe. Presumably they're still looking for someone because <laughs> Murphy's still there in the, in the, in the home clubhouse. Yeah. How did Eddie Logan was with the New York Giants in 1957, the last year. But when did he start? Ed Logan Senior, now you're talking about. No, junior. junior. Well, I think that's his first year, if I'm not mistaken. He may have been there. He, he hung around a lot around the clubhouses. But I think he only was the bat boy for that one year. Yeah, and then, and then he went into the, uh, and then he, the Air Force. Well, he, school he's in, into school, and then he's into the Air Force. Yeah, And he was a little disappointed, he thought, because in 58, during the summertime, he, uh, he thought he might get that job out in San Francisco, but his father had already given it away to uh, uh, a couple of other... Uh, well, Murph didn't have it. Roy McKercher, I think, is the other yes. youngster who's uh, the bat boy there. And then Murph comes on as the bat boy for the visiting team, and... God, Murph just stays. And st I mean, there's, there's there a tenure in baseball longer than Mike Murphy? I think he actually flipped the coin to see who would be the uh, McCurcher or uh, Ed Logan, the bat boy in San Francisco, and McCurcher won the coin flip. Yeah, yeah. And, and Ed Logan Jr. resented his father. Yeah, he did. He had some resentment for a while, but he's over that by yes. now. <laughs> yeah. There's a wonderful testimony in the book from Ed Logan. One of the tender parts of the story, of course, is to find the relationships that are there and see how those relationships are expressed. And father and son, in this instance, Ed Logan has wonderful things to say about his father. Funny kinds of things to say about his father. Yeah. 
Is anyone looking into or thinking of looking into the uh, 14 original teams that are not the Yankees or Giants? <laughs> you mean in terms of clubhouse guys? Well, it, it, I don't know. When I started this out, uh, I, I found, I think, one book that had been done on the clubhouse. I remember talking with Jim Gates at the time up at the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I said, Jim, is there anything that's really been done? And he says, no, there hasn't. There isn't anything that's really been done. Uh, and one of the things, uh, one of the best interviews I did was with Doug Rader. Rader really takes you back into the atmosphere that was back there. He was very close to Murph. Uh, Murph used to travel sometimes on the road. Uh, and uh, Rader talks about the other clubhouse guys. He mentions a series of guys, Josh out in Chicago and a guy named Jim Huey out in San Francisco and, or out in Los Angeles at the time and a variety of other guys. But I don't think, I don't think anybody's... But I would be so surprised to find anything quite like this piece of history because of the continuity over time and the length of tenure. But a lot of guys do stay for a very, very long time in the clubhouse. And several people have made that comment to me in my researches. What about Yash in Chicago? Yeah, Josh in Chicago was around. How long has he been there? 70 years? Uh, I, I, I don't know, but he's been there for a very, very long time. Yeah. He's retired now. He's not out there. Oh, right is that right? Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't think he has quite the tenure that Murph has. I think Murph passed him, but it's, it's pretty close. No, I think he did more. Did he? Well. I, I'm not sure, but I think so. Yeah. When we were in Scottsdale, was it Don and Charlie's? Yes. And they had a table, the first table there? Yes, they do. Yeah. yeah. It's preserved all the time. That's right. Nobody sits there, or if you are sitting there when Murph comes in for dinner in this uh, wonderful restaurant in Scottsdale, you're, you're going to be moved out of there because that's Murph's <laughs> table. And, of course, it's, it's surrounded with plaques and photos that connect into Murph's tender out there. Uh, you know, it was very hard for me to find. I, have, I, I didn't find anybody who would say anything negative or bad about Murph. <laughs> you know, they, he's a, the most beloved of all of the people involved with the Giants, and somebody whose loyalty to the team is just unquestioned. Huh? Yeah, so uh, they they named the clubhouse after. Yes, they did. Are you surprised that the Giants have not done anything yes, with the I Logan am. family, yes, I considering am. they had seventy-five to eighty years with the yeah. team? Yes, yeah. and and I think that should be changed. So they even have a pub uh, out in AT and T Park, which is Murph's pub. I think maybe that's even a more appropriate way to honor Murph than. <laughs> putting uh, the name on the clubhouse. Uh, in Candlestick Park, uh, if I'm correct about this, uh, there was a plaque to uh, Ed Logan, uh, uh, Ed Logan Sr., that is. But when they moved in, into, uh, from Candlestick into uh, AT&T, uh, that got lost someplace. And uh, now it's, there's no... Ed Logan uh, starts uh, in 1930... Uh, in the Giants clubhouse, and he's there all the way down to 1900, uh, 1979. Yeah, 1939. So Ed Logan did one year, is that right? Uh, as a back boy, Ed Logan Jr. did one year, but we're talking about Ed Logan Sr. So, so the family had 75 oh, yeah, years ago? Yeah, yeah. No, there's no question that there ought to be recognition out there in a very specific way for this we man who gave so much to the team. One of our requests was maybe to name the visiting clubhouse at the Logan family, but it kind of fell on deaf ears. Yeah, it would be very appropriate. And I hope that this book will push that along. Certainly I'm going to say that to any time I have the opportunity to say it to people in the Giants family. 
The one thing that commemorates him is a brick out there where the Giants have the bricks with the names on them, and that was donated by the Logan family, putting their father down there. Yeah. Maybe a nearby street could be called uh, ah, Logan, Logan Way. Way. Yeah, Logan Way. Why not? Yeah. Were there were there a lot of stories that they wanted you to take out from the book? No. Uh, the only story that, as I said, the one I read to you, that raised any question at all, and it was just Mario, and I you know, said, Mario, and he says, well, it is a good story, and just let it go, was that business of, you know, sign my balls, boy, sign my balls. All the others, uh, I guess, passed mustard, <laughs> mustard, as it were. And were there other stories that were just told to you off the record? You know, I, I would have thought that there would have been, but most of the people I talked to, well, Frank DeFord writes a, 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 a preface to this book, and, and in the preface he talks about the fact that this is not this is not one of those you know I'm pulling the curtain up and showing you all the dirty stuff that goes on in the clubhouse and all the fights that go on in the clubhouse. There are a few stories that reference that. DeFord says this is the happy scene in the clubhouse. These are the guys who are remembering fondly these people and telling just good, funny stories about them. So there, you know, there, there wasn't the, that kind of thing uh, involved. And everybody, basically, the one the, the story that I read to you is I recollect that's the only time anybody who I interviewed said, Larry, maybe you shouldn't use this. And he didn't say it in a final sort of way. And I hesitated over, over the cock pocket story, but then I got it from two different sources and I just said, well, it's just too good a story not to tell. It does reveal, a, you know, the crude side to the clubhouse, you know, <laughs> and the kinds of things that went on in there. But uh, yeah, no. you know, one of our members is not here tonight. That you know, Rich McCabe. Yes, Bat Boy. I spoke Bat, with him. Yeah, yeah. Giants Bat Boy, fifty-three, fifty-four. Sonny gave me a sandwich, and that started his uh, career. Did he working for Mister Logan? Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, you said that. Excuse me. Um, you said that black baseball plays a role in this book. Can you expand on that in terms of, you know... Well, the two places where it comes into play is this business in, in the 1920s of black trainers in, in the clubhouse. There was a series of them there, and uh, I think that's an interesting story to tell. And I bring into play the fact that it's very unlikely that uh, Fred Logan would not have tended to black players because there's games against the Giants that sometimes are played in the polo ground, sometimes they're played at Olympic Field. So he would have witnessed black ball players playing against the Giants at the time. And then, of course, the other piece of it is the fact that while the Dodgers are out in front, the Giants are only that little bit behind in terms of integrating you know, Major League Baseball. And in terms of the Latin American story, are way out ahead of everybody else. Uh, this out ended on Pompez. And hired by Horace Stoneham, well, you know the names. You, know, you just go down the list of them, Marichal, Cepeda, Lou, uh, Andre Rogers, on and on and on. They tapped into that talent pool marvelously, and that opened up uh, baseball in that regard. So, uh, And, and uh, Ed Logan has some interest as a youngster, Ed Logan Jr. now. It was a, 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 an education for him to be in that clubhouse. He references it. The fact that his attitude towards race in this country was really impacted as a kid, being in there when his dad had to tend to uh, the players who were there and, and, and make that work. And he, he said it taught him a lot of lessons uh, that were very valuable to him across, to, across his life in, in, in the Air Force and afterwards. Right. Do these same guys uh, work uh, 
Are they football giants in yes. football season? Yeah, they do. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Logans did very much. So Murph did out in, uh, and Ed Logan did out in San Francisco for the 49ers, too. Yeah. There's a so football study. The, um, the Polo Relief, I think as far back as the 20s, I don't know when it exactly started, there was the National Football League with the New York Giants. Yes. And, uh, and I think. used the same facilities. Uh, although, I'm, I'm the thing I can't. Um, I think Giants came to visit in 25. I think they came to visit. All right. Um, anyway, it was during those years. It was certainly in the 40s and 50s. And uh, now why is it the professional, all sports but baseball have head coaches in locker rooms and baseball has managers in clubhouses? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I don't have a, a good answer to that, but it is a, it is a very interesting observation. And, you know, uh, I wonder if we might not find an answer to it if we went into Paul Dixon's dictionary of uh, baseball dictionary. You know, you might, I think that would be probably be the source to go to, to to find out where the origins of that terminology come from. Larry, in your, in your research, did you come across a, a band named Julius Murray, H-O-R-A-I? That name's not familiar to me, no. He was, uh, he, you know, the NFL teams have what they call equipment managers, but they, in the early years, the 40s and 50s, they had clubhouse. He was the Giants clubhouse man, but he also assisted Pete in the offseason. Okay. Well, then he certainly would have had contact with the Logans. No the Logans. question. Yeah, he's yeah. passed away, but he... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, they, they do that... Uh, duty through the football season. Um, it's not in the book, but uh, I, I recollect Ed Logan Jr. making some comments about Steve Owen, the great coach of the Giants, uh, whose father interacted with you know extensively while he was uh, doing the football stuff. They didn't like the football stuff anywhere near as much as they liked the baseball stuff. Was, uh, they were basically baseball guys, but they needed to make a living, and, and like the ball players in the off season, you know, they had to have, have the cash coming in and uh, income coming in and so they, they worked wherever they could. Hooray told me that <clears throat> the legend is that Pete would always give the Maggio a half a cup of coffee. And I asked him, was that all he drank? He said no because he wanted to make sure it was always hot. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> These um, clubhouse managers lasted for many, many years. Uh, it's very unusual that you can keep your boss happy for so many years without somebody replacing you. Uh, is there any reason that you've seen that they were able to endure it for so long? They were people who liked what they were doing and, and knew how to do it in, in a way that was consistent over time. Uh, they weren't people who ruffled feathers. Uh, they took care of their players in, in, in you know, a very, very consistent and steady sort of way and they respected what they were doing very much. They weren't guys looking to get out of where they were. They were guys who had come to the job very young and at a time when uh, employment for them because they didn't have you know, other options uh, was, was that job. And as long as, as, long as they respected this, the, uh, the, the, that, that code of the clubhouse too, the whole business of, of uh, you know, what is set here, what happens here, stays here when you leave here, and they, they did. Uh, they just last and last and last and last. And, uh, 
it's really a remarkable. Uh, Nick Peters, who is uh, one of the beat writers for the Sacramento Bee, I think he still is. He's, I think he's up in the Hall of Fame now. Uh, he commented on that uh, to me uh, right at the outset when I interviewed him. He said, "Everybody loves the clubhouse guy. You know, and it seems like everywhere you go, they just hang on and hang on and hang on." A question. Uh, the flip side of that, in your conversations with Murph, I guess would be the most appropriate. Everybody loves the clubhouse guy. Was there any discussion about the clubhouse guy's feelings about ball players? If there was a change in the ball player once money became took giant leaps, well, they, they, Murph would never talk in specifics about any ball player, uh, and never say anything bad about any ball player. Period. That's his his code. But uh, there is a lot of talk here uh, about how the game has changed, yeah, and and the loss of a lot of the camaraderie that was there and the closeness that was there uh, before big money came into being, you know. And Chihi would talk about that. Kubek, I did a wonderful interview with Tony Kubek. Kubek was just a, a really, really good source for for Pete Chihi. Told some really funny stories, but Kubek shared that with me. Some of the last conversations he had. With Sheehy, were along those lines. All these guys think about his money all the time, Tony. You know that's, uh, and you know, and the, 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 well, you know, that that's the reality of the world that we're living in now, as opposed to back then when the clubhouse was much more tight knit. specific players that they like more than others. Pete Sheehy says, and this comes from his uh, from his uh, grandson, Pete Sheehy says that the last true Yankee that I will ever have in this clubhouse is Don Mattingly. He says that when Mattingly comes in and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the grandson is saying that uh, you know his dad had that notion of, of who are the best kinds of Yankees, who are going to be the best kinds of Yankees. Uh, yeah, and it, Murph, one person that I didn't get to, one of the things about a book like this is that there's so many people that you wish you had gotten to that you just didn't have a chance to. I just missed getting to, to Bobby Mercer. I would have given him my IT to have gotten to Bobby Mercer. But Mercer would have, he was out in San Francisco, he was in Cheney's Clubhouse, he was in Mercer's Club. Mercer told some funny stories about Mercer. But another person I didn't get to was Daryl Evans, and Murph and Daryl Evans are like that. Uh, so they had their favorites, yeah. And they had the guys who, Valmy Thomas. Anybody remember Valmy yeah, Thomas? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Noble, Noble's in here too. Raphael Noble and, and, and Valmy Thomas is in here. And and there's a, there's a there's a, a scene in the clubhouse with Valmy Thomas where uh, Valmy steps over a line in terms of being pissed off at uh, Ed Logan because Logan was. Uh, uh, taking uh, some money from him beyond what he thought he was supposed to be paying for all the services he was getting. So he comes in one day into the clubhouse uh, with his own uh, pail of water and he's washing his own uh, jock strap and his, all his stuff in the clubhouse. And then the two of them go back and forth in the clubhouse. Murph's a young guy observing this and Murph tells the story one way and uh, I picked it up another way, but uh, there, there was not uh, there was some pretty uh, bad blood between Valby Thomas and, and Ed Logan in that club. Where did uh, she die on the job? Practically, practically. What, what was he, he doesn't actually. It's eighty-five. Uh, he lasted Yeah, nineteen eighty-five. Yeah, and he's buried. He died in nineteen eighty-five. I think he's there early in the season. 
I don't think he literally dies in the clubhouse, but he's still the yeah. active clubhouse manager. They take him off to a you know, hospital because he's sick, and then he passes. Yeah. Does Murphy have any plans to retire? I think they'll carry Murph out of the clubhouse. How old is yeah. he? He's 63, 64, somewhere right in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last part of the book involves that, the whole business of you know retirement. Are you ever going to retire? Are you ever going to be able to walk away? And, uh, and Ed Logan did in 79 and had you know nine, seven or eight years. I think he dies in the, the late 80s, so he had nice, nice years of retirement out there. Uh, Fred Logan, 46 last season, and he dies that winter. So these guys just persist. They hang on. I'm sure he was well taken care of after the two World Series championships oh, the last yeah, couple of years. Yeah, yeah, he was well taken. Well, uh, actually, Ed Logan, uh, when we heard what Murph got uh, as his share uh, in 2010, Ed Logan said to me, he should have gotten more than that. <laughs> $310,000 they gave him a share for, for Murph in like, 2010. So. What is, do the umpires have clubhouse people? I don't think they do, but the umpires and the clubhouse guys are very close. Uh, Ed Montague was one of the other umpires that I wanted to get to and never did because he is close to Murphy. You know, they're guys, interacting all the time. What does this guy change their... Uh, well, yeah, I think the clubhouse guys do kind of care for the umpires. Now, where do these guys, umpires, go to change their clubhouse? They have normally a special, separate room. room. Yeah, yeah, separate room. Yeah, not in the clubhouse per se, but the clubhouse guys are looking out for them. It's an old story. Did, did the Logans actually, I heard, saw pictures, did they actually live at the Polo Grounds? No, but there is a, uh, who, who's the guy who lives? Matty Schwab. The, yeah, uh, I'm not saying I mean, the groundskeeper. Yeah, the groundskeeper. Yeah, that was part of the deal, I think. Wasn't he with the Dodgers? He was with Cincinnati for was with the Dodgers, and he came over to the Giants, Horace Tonham hired him away, and they actually had a little apartment built in, uh, below the left field wall where Thompson hits his home yeah. run. And Schwab and his family lived in there. Yeah. Well, Ed Logan recollects that very fondly, you know, that he and, his, and uh, the youngsters, the Schwab youngsters, you know, played a lot out on the pole grounds when giants weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. Was the configuration of the clubhouse at the pole grounds, so there were offices there and there, was a lock, there were locker rooms there? Which was on top of the other? The offices were upstairs. There's a wonderful story in here that comes from uh, Ed Logan about uh, Mel Ott. Uh, McGraw used to uh, insist that all the players stay there after the game, and he would generally go up to the office and then come down afterwards, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes, maybe a half hour, but they could not leave the clubhouse. And this one day, McGraw comes down, and Mel Ott isn't there. Where the hell is that? blah, 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 blah. Well, uh, Ott was upstairs uh, showering because he had a date that night that he wanted to get out to. And um, um, McGraw goes upstairs and, and uh, uh, Fred Logan was up there at the time and he says, uh, you know, where is he? And he, he, he had gotten into the uh, flush, into the toilet and standing up on the toilet with the, with the door locked. Uh, and uh, uh, he, uh, McGraw says to Fred Logan, he says, you got a key to that? And, yeah, I got a key to that. He says, lock it and lock him in there, in that area in the clubhouse. That was upstairs. 
and he was in there naked for you know an hour or two, and McGraw was upstairs drinking with Stoneham. Everybody was always drinking with Stoneham, of course. You know? And uh, he was upstairs drinking with Stoneham, and he comes down, and he says, that guy's still in there? He said, you can let him out now. It was like two hours in there. So, so that was the upstairs-downstairs story. You know, a book should be written just about the Logans from 18... 18- well, I think this is probably as close as you're ever going to come to it. Uh, uh, you know, the and, and I, I knew I had to get there. That, that's interesting you should say that, because when I first went to Murph, Murph says, oh, no, I don't want to really, I don't want to. And then I had to, entree went into him through Peter McGowan, so he had to open up. But he kept protesting all the time. He said, Mr. Logan, you ought to write about it. Mr. Logan, you ought to write about it. So I knew I had to write about Mr. Logan, and I was surprised at myself that I was able to write as substantially as I did about Fred Logan. There's a much, much bigger version of this. <laughs> Editors always do that to you. You know, they take away a lot of the stuff that you think is so damn good, but it's you know peripheral to a certain degree. I don't know if it'll ever see its way into print. But what it does is to locate the story in the larger world that it was the, the, this story was a part of. This is really focused on baseball and in the clubhouse. But uh, you know, there's uh, I, I left out a whole chapter that I wrote on the uh, rivalry between the Giants and the Dodgers, them bums and them Giants, uh, because it didn't quite keep me focused. The editor insisted on that in the in the clubhouse. Uh, there's a, a well. I was looking at some of the stuff today that I had left out, and there's a, a section on uh, how Irish the Giants were in the 19 teens, and how Irish baseball was in the 19 teens. And there's this business of whether the Logans were Irish or not. Well, they were actually Scotch, but they Ed Logan passed himself off as Irish ancestry because it was just you know, <laughs> more the thing to do at that point in time. So there's a whole lot of stuff, you know, that would make for a much thicker book, and maybe someday. <laughs> Or do you consider yourself a giant fan, or just a fan of the sport? Or you know, I, be I, careful. No, no. Well, I, 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 this, and that works. That works its way into the book as well. Uh, you know, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. I was born in 1944. The first really significant piece of baseball history that I, is in my head is the 1950 Wiz Kids in Philadelphia playing against the Yankees. Now. I've done so much on the history of blacks in baseball that people automatically expect that I must have been a Dodger fan. You know, it had to be. I wasn't a Dodger fan. Who was winning all the time there, there back in 1950? Yankees were winning all the time. Who was a kid of of six or seven years going to root for except the team that's winning all the time? So I'm a Yankee fan. (laughs) But I am a I am a born-again Giants fan, I have to tell you that, after this experience and this book. Well, here, this is proof positive. I I pick up the Star-Ledger every morning. I think one of the most civilized things that I hate the fact that we're losing newspapers, you know, onto the net and all of that business. It's fine in its own way, but I like a newspaper in the morning, and the Star-Ledger comes in every morning to my house, and I turn, obviously, to the standings and to the box scores, and I'm looking at the Yankees, and I'm looking at the Mets, but I'm also looking at the Giants every day. Every day. <laughs> where are they? You know, where in the standings? If I they've got the score or whatnot. So, yeah, this is. Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm I'm a Giant person. My brother was a big Giant fan. It was an interesting house to grow up in. My father was an Athletics fan, 
my brother was a Giants fan and I was a Yankee fan. Now, why was my father an athletics fan? For the same reason I was a Yankees fan. He was born in 1901. When he came to baseball, the athletics were winning everything. So he was an athletics fan. I was born in the Bronx, surrounded by the Yankees, Dodgers, and Giants. Some nutty kid, two years older than me, said, I'm going to take you to the polo grounds. I'm going to love the Cubs. How he became a Cub fan, I don't know. But I went, the Cubs killed the Giants. I caught a foul ball of the bat, Len Marula, who will be, next week will be 95. And he was my hero. We became friends later on, 30 years later. But... It was very tough being a Cub fan in the Bronx. You get killed. you're a Cub fan. Oh, no kidding. And then they had to pile it on. The Cubs have been killing you ever since because they can't win. I, I think I just about got over it. I made that speech in front of Louis Vegas and everything. As a former Cub fan, I got to laugh right there. <laughs> and I said, it took uh, Gary and a few others to convince me. Psychiatrists couldn't do it. <laughs> to be a Giants fan, so I'm almost there. So when the Giants played the Cubs, like last week, I didn't care. Oh. I stayed away. So, very unusual to be a Cub fan in the Bronx. I might have been too. That's it. Well, uh, I think we're going to wrap up. If people still have other questions or uh, would like to hang out, we're going to have the ball game on, but we just need to end the podcast portion of the evening. And Larry, just a quick question. For those listening to the podcast, where can they get the book? Uh, is it through Amazon? or it's through Amazon or directly from the publisher, St. Joan Press. But Amazon has it, so that's probably the most direct way to get it. All right, terrific. And once again, the name of the book... So Many Seasons in the Sun. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful title. And I would just like to end with uh, your dedication, of all things, because I thought it was so beautiful. Uh, Who else could this be dedicated to than the four extraordinary gentlemen whose story it is? Father Fred, Mr. Logan, Silent Pete, and Murph. Mm -hmm. So Many Seasons in the Sun by Lawrence D. Hogan. Thank you. Thank you.